Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The country that we all live in now was built by the generation of Americans who were born in the years after World War II. For decades, the needs of the baby boomers, for all their differences, drove the planning of government officials, the functioning of the economy, and the halls of power. Over the next two decades, that influence will wane. But what happens then? Washington Post columnist Philip Bump has a new book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America, And it tells a data-driven story about where demographics might be destiny and the unknowns that could determine where the country lands over the rest of the century. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The Gen X Philip Bump began his journey to writing about the baby boom, not with the OK Boomer meme, but rather through a contact with the Census Bureau for a story years ago. During one of the many debates over whether generations had any reality or were merely some marketing invention, a Census Bureau official told Bump that they only recognize one generation as special and distinct. And it is the baby boom, a demographic event that transformed the United States and the world. Here to talk with us about what happened then and why this generation has had such an impact, we're joined in Studio B by Philip Bump. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Alexis. So talk to me about just how big and transformative the baby boom was. I mean, we all kind of know it, but there's clearly there's more to be be said. Sure. No, absolutely. I'm a numbers guy, so I tend to go to the numbers first. And the way to think about it is 1945, there's about 140 million people in America. Total population, 140 million. Over the course of the next 19 years, you have 76 million babies born, right? So more than 50% of the entire population of the country is then born. And not only, you know, this is not just an addition to the population. This is little kids and teenagers, right? And so you think about how you have to reshape your country as a result of that. So five years after the boom starts, all of a sudden you need more kindergartens, right? You need more kindergarten teachers. You then need more middle schools. Over the course of the boom, from the start of the boom to the end of the boom, Los Angeles County was adding one new elementary, middle, or high school every single month, right? Because you got to do it. You have all these kids coming. (laughs) But then you think about, you take a step back from that and you think, How does that then transfer over the course of decades? And over the course of decades, you have this massive surge of population that needs to be accommodated, needs to be accommodated once it gets to graduates from high school. Are they going to labor force? Are they going to get drafted to Vietnam? It needs to be accommodated into the workforce over the long term. And now we're at the stage where it needs to be accommodated in retirement. And that's leading to a lot of the tension that we see. What as the baby boom went through the country, I mean, what would you say were the were the biggest impacts that 
they had? I mean, on was it on housing? Was it on you know changes to the political system? Yeah, I mean, my my answer is going to sound like a cop out, right? Fundamentally, they changed everything about the United States, and it had to be. Right. When you have this massive surge of people that begins in 1946, ends in 1964, everything has to be reshaped around it. And government, the, the existing politicians, the political power structure has to figure out, OK, how do we deal with this thing? That's you know obviously silent generation and older. Then they assume power and they're concerned about what is what the majority or not the majority necessarily, but the largest group of Americans is dealing with, you know, new families. So we do see all these things that emerge. We see things like uh, the baby boomers being able to buy houses at lower prices, being able to attend college, you know, at a, at a greater scale than prior generations. Mm-hmm. We see all of these effects that we're now sort of dealing with, but they are just sort of part of the country's massive effort to try and accommodate this huge population. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, was the baby boom different in different places? Like, you know, California was an area with such sort of high levels of in-migration, both from the Black South, you know, in the years after the war, but also from Latin America and Asia, especially post-64. So, you know, do you think that the baby boom was kind of pretty similar everywhere or were the multiple demographic shifts that were happening here? Did that kind of change the story in for California? No, I mean, the the baby boom was universal in the United States. I mean, it happens, you know, white Americans, black Americans that we, we saw these surges. Your, your point about immigration is really, really crucial, it, particularly. I mean, it's a, it's a central theme of the book. People need to understand about the baby boom as well, that it occurred at a period when Immigration in the United States was at a low, that there had been new restrictions on immigration, primarily as a response to new immigrants from Eastern Europe, Southern Europe, and Asia in about the 1920s. They weren't lifted until after the baby boom was ended. So the baby boom generation is also distinct in that it is much less densely immigrant-heavy, much less the children of immigrants than later generations. It is also, therefore, much whiter. And so, yes, California is a is a very unique state. I've, obviously, everyone knows this, uh, but it is unique in part because it w- was a center of that new immigration. But the baby boom itself was not heavily driven by immigration simply because immigration laws were so strict. You know, one of the things that you you note and you you kind of mentioned it in passing here is that baby boomers are substantially whiter than, you know, Gen X, millennial, Gen Z. What does that mean for the political nature of, of these generations? There are a number of ways in which the baby boom is demographically distinct from younger generations, including that they are more densely white, right? And so there are other things, too, like younger generations are more heavily college-educated. They're less likely to participate in political parties, things along those lines that have overlap with politics. But when we consider what's happened over the course of the past 15 years or so, right? So we have the Great Recession that occurs right as baby boomers are starting to get ready for retirement. You know, all of a sudden they see stock prices plunge with their retirement values. That in part encourages them to start focusing more on their houses as storehouses of wealth. Uh, But you also then see the election of Barack Obama. 2008 was an absolutely signal year, not just because Barack Obama was the first black president, but because he was a president that A – got a lot of support from younger Americans who were enthusiastic about diversity. B, he seemed to signal to a lot of Americans that there was this new demographically diverse group of voters that were weighing in. And C, he was cast by the the right as being this, you know, framing his race through the lens of things like, you know, is he actually an American or is he actually a socialist? And so you see all those patterns start to emerge that then after he's successful, you know, obviously I can go on for hours on this particular subject, (laughs) um, but that then overlaps with the Republican Party having to make a decision after Mitt Romney loses in 2012. Are we going to focus on 
white Americans and use that as our power center, or are we going to grow more diverse? And they say, you know what? We're going to grow more diverse. And then Donald Trump comes and says, no, actually, we're not. And that, 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 that is, that is the last uh, many years of our lives now. Indeed. Uh, we're talking with Philip Bump. He's a Washington Post national columnist and author of The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. You know, we'd love to hear from you. How much is your generation part of your identity compared with you know, some other factors of your life? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. If you were born during the baby boom, how much do you identify as a baby boomer? The number is 866-733-6786. Email comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. And, of course, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum. You know, one of the things that's fascinating to think about this massive population kind of working through you know, the, the lifespan of, of the baby boom mm-hmm. is that the workforce is going to look really different, right? Um, when, when do we see baby boomers leaving the workforce in larger numbers and like kind of where are we in that arc? So obviously it depends to a large extent on when people choose to leave the workforce. And one of the things that the Great Recession did is it pushed out when people felt comfortable being able to do that. So when you look at polling from, you know, basically right after the 90s, the economic boom of the 90s, a lot of people are like, oh, I'm going to be able to retire at 65 or earlier. After the recession, when you poll again, they're like, well, it's going to take me longer than I expected, right? So that, that's the first question. But if we use 65 as the benchmark, then you see baby boomers start to reach that point about 2007, right? That they start to they start to be reaching the age at which they're able to retire. Uh, but then the the peak year of the baby boom was 1957. That was when the most births occurred. If you add 65 to that, you get 2022, right? So we are just at the peak of when these retirements are going to start to happen. And so we're starting to see these constraints on, you know, part of when I spoke with someone back in early 2021, right after Joe Biden was inaugurated, and he said, look, in a couple of years, we're going to be grasping for jobs. You know, we're going to have, we're going to need workers from all over the place because we're going to start seeing these retirements. And sure enough, that's what we're seeing. And if you track the components of the labor force at this point, you see the decline in baby boomer participation. I mean, it's just wild to think about that there's going to be this tidal force of baby boomers leaving the job market and therefore kind of labor market tightness. I mean, what did the economists that you talked to, what did they think that that would lead to? Well, the, the person with whom I spoke is a guy named Douglas Massey, who's actually out here in California. And one of the things that he really focuses on is this balance between older generations leaving the workforce and the need for more workers and how that then should drive a demand for immigration, right? That we don't have the replacement rate just through the natural birth in the United States alone, that this is a natural – the natural response to that then is to improve immigration and get more immigrants in the United States. Of course, though, that then overlaps with what we are just talking about and this concern, particularly among older white Americans. Americans about how America is, quote unquote, changing because we're bringing immigrants in because the immigrants that occurred before the baby boom were largely from Europe and are now considered white in a way, you know, even if they weren't necessarily considered white in the same way because when they were from Eastern Europe in 1920, they now are. And so this change in who the immigrants are then has a political effect on immigration, which then contributes to the problem of this workforce tightness because we're not as willing to open up the borders and, you know, have people immigrate to the United States to take jobs. So what happens if those two things happen in concert? Like we don't open up the borders to greater immigration and we do see 
baby boom retirements. Well, there's a very practical question. And so one of the things that demographers track is the ratio between older Americans and working age Americans. Because obviously, if you are going to have governmental support structures for older Americans, Social Security and Medicare, you need people paying into those systems now. Now, absolutely, it's the case that part of the reason we're seeing these big declines in Social Security and Medicare funding at this point in time, that the storehouses of money that are used for those programs, part of the reason they're declining is because baby boomers are drawing down from it. They put in a ton of money. They swelled the coffers, if you will, and now they're starting to draw down from it. That's that's an effect that we're seeing. But if we don't have enough people in the workforce contributing taxes who are then going to pay for those systems, then that then affects how much money people are going to be able to draw out of it. And so people are very concerned. Democrats are very concerned about this ratio getting way out of whack. And it really has over the course of the last decade. It's really started to skyrocket. And if you don't have enough workers to make up that back end, then you have to think about what the repercussions are for older Americans. And so it's almost if you are an older American who uses these government programs and really is anti-immigration, you're sort of shooting yourself in the foot. You know, but aren't there a lot of millennials? I mean, one of the things you point out in the book is that millennials as a generation are almost as large, right? Because we're sort of this echo of the baby boom. That's right. Yeah, you're right. If, if If you take the number of boomers at the age of 40 and the number of millennials when they first started hitting 40, it's about 9 to 10, right? There's about 9 millennials for every 10 boomers. And that's true. But then we come back to this broader pattern of how the government has to accommodate this new phase of the boomers' existence, right? So the government has always been caught sort of flat-footed and having to reshape itself to deal with this surge in people. We are now seeing this huge spike in older Americans that has not existed before, right? And it's going to continue even past the boom just because people are living longer and so on and so forth. But because the government has to deal with this new force, it isn't necessarily prepared to, to accommodate it. It doesn't know what it's going to do necessarily. And so, yes, there are a lot of millennials coming up, but we are, we are again, having to reshape our existing expectations and programs for older Americans because of this surge from the baby boom. And so even if we have a bunch of millennials coming into the workforce, which we do, they're replacing an exceptional number of people into a system that we don't necessarily know how it's going to work. We're talking with Philip Bump. He's a Washington Post national columnist and author of The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. We are talking about the baby boom and we'd love to hear from you. Are you a boomer and how are you feeling about retiring? Are you going to do it? When are you going to do it? Why? Why not? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. Back with more with Philip Bump right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. 
I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with the author of the new book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. He's Philip Bump, a Washington Post national columnist. Um, so the book is called The Aftermath. Right. So you're trying to think about what's going to happen as the baby boomers kind of influence wanes. Um, tell us how you tried to set up looking out and predicting. So, yeah, I... I because we're at this point of generational shift, of shifting away from boomers being the center of power in culture and politics and economics, I want to think about what that meant, right? And, you know, when we talk about how America's been reshaped by the boom, what happens once the boom loses that influence? And so those are the three things to focus on, culture, politics, and economics. Uh, economics is one of the more interesting ones, in part because it's not my wheelhouse. I don't write about it all the time. So I got to, you know, really sort of d dive in and learn about it as I was writing. Uh, and I spoke with this group called Cerulean Associates that do estimates of transfers of intergenerational wealth. Mm -hmm. Their mm. estimate is that more than $50 trillion will wow. move out of the baby boom over the course of the next two decades. That $2 trillion alone just last year moved from baby boomers. In part, that's from bequeathments from baby boomers dying and leaving it to institutions or family members. In part, it's from what's called inter vivo transfers, right? So people over the course of their lives, you know, paying for a kid's school or mm. paying for a kid's house or things along those lines. Uh, but, you know, it's a huge amount of wealth. And one of the things that we think about when we think about the boom is the boom is itself a very wealthy generation, in part because it holds uh, – has – a high rate of home ownership, right? And home, homes are a massive source of wealth in the United States. But it's in part because there's just so many of them. And so when you look at the baby boomers individually, baby boomers individually are no wealthier than any other generation. It's just that there are so many of them that they have this aggregate amount of wealth. And the question is, so what happens then? What happens then as the baby boomers start to die, as they start to move in retirement homes and sell their homes? The book obviously spends a lot of time looking at this. Uh, and it's, it's very unclear, in part because we don't know how long they're going to live. We don't know how often they're going to be affected by serious medical conditions. How much of that 50 trillion is going to go to pay for Medicare costs, right? Or not Medicare costs, but medical mm -hmm. costs, right? I'm just like you're saying Medicare these days. Um, but, you know, I mean, we don't know the answer to that, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things that people I spoke with are very confident is that the wealthy families will continue to be very wealthy and will continue to see the wealth inequality that exists, perhaps unsurprisingly. Uh, and of course, politics is a whole different ballgame, which I'm happy to talk about as well. But yeah. I think the economics is fascinating. That's interesting. Let's, um, let's get to a call here. Um, let's bring in Clark in San Francisco. Welcome, Clark. Thank you very much. I'm very glad to be here. Yeah, go ahead. Tell us your story. Um, I, I, I do not identify as a baby boomer at all. I was my mother's love child of the 60s. I was born in 1962. And I have ended up being a absolute, wondrous, loving, accepting liberal and caring for people. And most of the people of my generation belong in red states and live in red states. And it, 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 it's irritating to me to even be identified with the generation. Uh, I'd like to ask the author if he's experienced that kind of, that kind of uh, uh, experience yeah. with other people that he's talked to. Well, I'll tell you what, Clark. I did not want to be labeled a millennial for a long time, in part because <laughs> the media creation of millennials seemed so annoying. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of listeners going, no, you're such a millennial, dude. But... I so I feel your pain, um, Philip. How much reality is there to shared characteristics across right. a generation? You know, we know that some of the other generations are just age cohorts. But if you really did grow up during this time, are there shared characteristics and uh, and and what isn't shared? As Clark is kind of sure. indicating. 
Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right that there are always, when you have a similar group of people growing up in a similar time period, you are going to have characteristics. People who grew up in the Great Depression have a different relationship with money than we do, right? It's just there are things that are characteristic to groups of people that live through similar experiences. It is also the case that baby boom, again, is a massive, massive generation, right? And so, you know, there's one of the ways in which I like to think about generations is sort of like horoscopes. It, you know, the baby boom generation is real, but horoscopes are you sort of have, you know, they're, they're between these dates, but you can be on the cusp and they're sort of like this, but a lot of people aren't like that. That's sort of how generations are, that there may be shared characteristics and people sort of, you know, it's fun to talk about and fun to read about, uh, not necessarily accurate. One of the things about the baby boom and this characterization of them as is conservative, I think, is very common. I think there's a reason for that. The baby boom really isn't much more densely conservative than it is liberal. Mm. It's about it's about evenly split, a little more Republican than Democratic. But because the Democratic Party skews so much younger, because most young people are Democrats, they make up a greater density of the Democratic Party. Older people make up a greater density of the Republican Party. So when you think of a Republican, you think of an older person much more likely and an older, whiter person because that's who tends to be in the Republican Party. So that contributes to it as well. But then you think about who led the backlash to Donald Trump in early 2017. It was older, college-educated white women, baby boomers, right? So you have to think about there being this massive generation that includes multitudes. Yeah. You know, Wendy writes in to say, you know, as an early boomer, my experience is different from those that came later. Mm -hmm. I had to be bused in kindergarten and first grade until schools were built, like you were talking about. Right. But I don't identify as a boomer, but as someone who shared the same experiences as my cohort. The birth control pill, the women's movement, growing up on TV, the Vietnam War, the assassinations of Kennedys, etc. I thought maybe, you know, because Wendy mentioned growing up on TV, mm -hmm. as well as the birth control, uh, birth control pill, like two very important technologies... Talk to me about the technological world that baby boomers both, you know, kind of came into and also created. Yeah, TV is fascinating because obviously people associate with the baby boom. There's a re very real reason why. 1946, when the baby boom began, very, very few American households had televisions. By the time it ended in 1964, almost everyone did. So it is exact. It is absolutely the case the baby boomers grew up with television, like <laughs> literally did so. Right, television grew as alongside of them, and it was also this obviously this first means of mass communication and advertising. Now consider that when you have this huge group of people. The very first people who benefited from the baby boom were people who sold diapers, right? No, literally, right? right? You know, I mean, there's this Life magazine article from the 1950s that looks at the huge economic boom just among people who sell stuff to babies, right? right. Makes sense. But then they become teenagers. One of my favorite factoids from the book is that Seventeen magazine at the outset of the baby boom is like, we cater to people who are like 13 to 17. You can be a, you can be young and still be a teenager. And then by the end of the baby boom, they're like, well, actually, we target like 18 to 25 because, you know, these are the real teens at heart. You know, they, they accommodated... You know, it's called 17, but they right, changed right. the range that they applied to because they wanted to appeal to more people. So it is absolutely the case, obviously, that te television drove that uh, that same sort of advertising to this massive group of people that you did see, that you see, you know, this is part of the reason why I say that the baby boomers responsible for modern America, because all these things happened in concert as this massive population grew. And so, yes, they, there are all these effects of technology, but that's just because they were this huge group of people that defined what America was. Yeah. Let's bring in uh, Colleen in Menlo Park. Welcome, Colleen. Thank you so much. So um, I am a baby boomer at the late end. I was born in 1960, but um, and I do identify as a boomer in terms of my childhood. I think we had the years that I grew up, I was in the Bay Area, a magical childhood in some way. Sure, there was TV, but we weren't stuck in front of screens all day long. Mm. We were outside playing, kick the can and capture <laughs> the flag and all of these wonderful games. Our parents, um, you know, were not hovering like helicopters. I was, you know, six 
it was really a wonderful time. And I also think, though, in, in terms of comparing retirement and, and the changes that are happening, uh, every generation changes. And I think that so many people look at the American dream of two cars in the garage and modern appliances and, you know, everything. That was true, I think, for our parents' generation, those born mm-hmm. kind of during the Depression and shortly after. Um, things were less expensive. School teachers could afford houses in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. How's that for a thought? <laughs> um, you know, it just, we can't expect it to be the same, just as it wasn't the same for my grandparents or great-grandparents. And we just have to adjust to change um, and not expect things to stay the same. And I do like being a boomer. I'm not a conservative. But, uh, you know, it. I, I like, um, you know, people from my generation. I feel that when we talk about the olden days, we understand what we mean. We did have television, but believe it or not, it went off at midnight in a, a test <laughs> That's right. That, yeah. They would play the national anthem, and then it would go off. That's amazing. <laughs> So, you know, watching the first men land on the moon and that kind of thing, it was it was a wonderful time to be a child. And I, I don't hate my adulthood either. So, <laughs> thank, you. Um, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Colleen. I mean, you know what you what you gestured at in your in this comment is kind of the world was, in fact, built for children because there were so many kids. That was one of the things you you think about those wonder years times. You think about the opening of public pools and all these mm-hmm. schools and building of, you know, vast numbers of houses for new families. And that does seem to be something that's like quite distinct. Like we have not rebuilt the world for millennial kids or Gen Z kids that's or right. whatever Gen Alpha is that what our kids are? Right, right, right. <laughs> whatever they are. Theoretically, yeah. Yeah. No, no, that's true. You know, there, there did have to be this massive investment. I, I do want to point out this, this, the, the comment about suburban life in the garage, and you know, a lot of our expectations for what it means to be successful in America are driven by the, the, the experiences that the baby boomers had, right? That wasn't the, ex- the expectation prior to the baby boom, and the way things are now were are a function of decisions that were largely made by the baby boomers as well. So I think it's important to realize that while yes, we have, you know, that there exists that ideal, uh, the baby boomers do bear responsibility for a lot of that, right? And, and I don't mean that. As as, as a condemnation, but just, you know, sort of a, an acknowledgement. You, you're absolutely right. This idea that we had to build all these things to accommodate all of these children is absolutely accurate. And again, we're getting to this issue of scale. But when we talk about the fact that we haven't seen the same level of investment for people, you know, our age who are having kids or younger who are having kids, uh, part of that is because the American government has been so focused for so long on accommodating the needs of the baby boom. And one of the reasons that we're seeing the generational tension we're seeing in the moment is because for the first time, the baby boom generation, which has never had to contest with any other age group for priority over the course of its entire existence, that has always been the dominant force. For that good is demanding, reasons. Absolutely. Yeah. For yeah. totally yeah. valid reasons. Yeah is now having to contest, right? And so now we see right at this moment when they're transitioning into to, uh, being retirees and to senior living and things along those lines, now we also have this large group. This goes back to your point about there being so many millennials and Gen Z, and they're advocating for a different set of priorities. They're advocating for more spending on kids. They're advocating for more spending on education. They're advocating for all these things in contesting for limited resources with the older generation. And that's part of the tension that we're seeing in the moment mm-hmm. as well. So, you know, one of the other things that Colleen mentioned was, you know, imagine a school teacher being able to uh, to afford a house. Um, One thing I think most younger generations do see is that housing has gotten much more difficult for us. We all have a set of housing gripes, um, particularly, I mean, in the Bay Area. We all know what I'm talking about here. Um, Is that fair? 
Is it actually more difficult now to buy a, a home in most places, or is this you know more uh, just in a few cities? Well, it, it is very much more in a few cities. I mean, the Bay Area and New York City, in the New York City area where I live, these are two places that are more affected by it. Yes, I mean, this this is a very real complaint. But there are also very understandable reasons for it. One is that because there are maybe more baby boomers who are living longer, they are less likely to turn over their houses in the way that would have been the case in the years past. But this is actually a really, really fascinating subset of the political debate and really helps, I think, illustrate why there's some misunderstandings about the baby boomers. So consider this. The baby boomers, as we said, start hitting retirement age right at the end of the Great Recession, right? So they see this huge decline in stock prices. They see their homes as a storehouse of value. Polling shows they understand that their homes are going to be something that's going to help them retire. Therefore, individual baby boomers have an incentive to try and keep the, high, the sale price of their home up. And so when there is a decision to be made in our local community, should we build an apartment building? Should we build all these new houses down the street from you? They are incentivized to come out and say no. They also have more free time to attend meetings. There's a fascinating study in the book that shows that even despite that, when moving, when meetings moved to Zoom during the, the pandemic, it was still mostly homeowners that were calling into these meetings, even though anyone could join. You know, there was no limitation of having to, you know, track down to City Hall or whatever. It was still more homeowners because homeowners were invested in protecting the, the resale value of their homes because they needed this as a storehouse of value for retirement. Not always, but often. If individual people are making that decision in individual communities, and there are millions and millions of boomers because the scale of the baby boom is so big, that then has this dampening effect. And it's a huge dampening effect. There was a study that's cited in the book that, if I'm remembering correctly, because of constraints on housing just in the Bay Area and New York City alone, just those constraints and, you know, several other large cities, it, it actually cut the, the economic growth of the country nationally by about a third over the course of several decades, mm -hmm. which is a huge effect. But again, largely driven by individual decisions worried about their own futures. Interesting. Um, couple of comments here. Uh, Marina writes, as a Gen X person, I feel that all of the media coverage is either on the baby boomers, millennials, and now Gen Z. Right. In recent years, my generation is not even mentioned. The Gen X generation is all but invisible. Um, as a member of the generation yourself, Philip, sure. like, how do you feel about people who say, well, you know, we, we we have been written out of the story here. Well, first of all, I need to do better about accommodating them earlier in these interviews because this <laughs> invariably comes up. The challenges are just weren't enough of us, right? We were never able to contest for power with the baby boom generation because there weren't enough of us to do that contesting. Right. That, I mean, that's that's it. <laughs> There's no more than that. So we sort of had to trail along, you know, we're, we're more as to the sharks that were the, the baby boom generation. We just sort of trailed along and, you know, lived our lives sort of in their shadow. The reason the millennials get so much attention now is, A, they're at a much different stage of life than we were. We're, we're obviously you know, definitionally, slightly younger than the boomers. Millennials are much younger than the boomers. And so our needs overlap with the boomers' needs more than millennials' needs over, overlap with the boomers' needs. But again, in the same way that the boom's size is what makes it important, the millennial size is what makes it important. Hmm. Let's um get to Mick in Mill Valley. Welcome, Mick. Oh, hi there. Hey. All right. Um, so I wanted to make I wanted to make a point about um, yes, I am a boomer first off, and uh, but I'm still working because uh, I'm in a situation where I'm able to work and continue to make decent money. Um, but my point about uh, the social security is that there's actually a limit on the the amount of what you earn that you pay into social security. I don't know what the exact figure is. Let's say it's $160,000, $170,000. You pay 10 or 
goes to the Social Security payment. And after that, anything you earn isn't taxed. So there's a huge amount of people in the country, especially in the Bay Area in California, that make a lot, lot more money than that. And if they were to pay the 10% or 11% Social Security tax on the amount over and above, then that would go a great way to helping solve the shortage of the funds that are available for Social Security at the moment. So that's my main point that hasn't been brought up. And also, um, you know, the continuation of separating the generations. It's like something that's going on in America at the moment between generations. I mean, everything's race. You know, identity politics. It's like splitting people apart instead of bringing people together. We should work together on these things instead of dividing people. You know, I know for selling books and for writing articles, it's appealing and it makes it more interesting for people to read. You know, but, you know, Mm. people to work together to solve problems, that would be so much more beneficial to the country. Yeah, thanks, Mick. And basically, that's my my, my, uh, comment. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks Thanks for the call. You know, one of the things that Mick mentioned is sort of there are these economic structures that were built um, in the early 20th century Mm -hmm. to accommodate, you know, this changing America. One of them being Social Security and the way that Social Security works. How much do you think the economic structures need to change to accommodate the baby boomers heading into retirement? Yeah, I mean, this is dramatically. (laughs) <laughs> is the short answer, right? You know, and again, this is the pattern we've seen at the boom since the beginning. One of the things that's fascinating, though, is the Republican Party for years was very focused on, you know, we need to cut entitlement spending, we need to cut Social Security, we need to cut Medicare, yada, yada, yada. But now that the Republican Party is so densely old, right, you know, more than half of the parties over the age of 50, about a third of them are 65 and over. <laughs> that you see, you saw at the State of the Union, Joe Biden is very effective at saying, hey, you know, the Republicans want to do this. Republicans are like, no, no, we'd never do that. we never do that. And he got them on record. But the Republicans have a very strong disincentive in this moment to go after programs that old people use. So it seems like the sorts of changes uh, that were just suggested by Mick are pretty likely because Republicans will be on board with it. I, I do also want to say to to the comment about talking about race splitting us up, there's a, there's a quote that in the book, it's not original to me, that I, that I, that I pulled out of the research. And the quote is that to, to be white is to not have to think about race, something along those lines. And that it is white Americans who tend to be the ones who say, we shouldn't, why, why are we focused on race? Whereas non-white Americans tend to understand why it's important to recognize those distinctions. We're talking with Philip Bump. He is a Washington Post national columnist and author of the new book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. I've been loving your calls on how you feel like your generation is part of your identity or not. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. What concerns do you have about the baby boom and its aging Give us a call, 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal, joined by Philip Bump, Washington Post national columnist and author of the new book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. We are talking about generations and the changes that are coming to the country as a result of the baby boom's waning influence. Let's bring in Rachel in Rodeo. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for letting me talk. Oh, so so glad um, to have you. I'm a baby I'm a baby boomer, born in 1950. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really don't always identify myself as a baby boomer. I hang around with a lot of young people. I used to be a community college counselor. Mm-hmm. Um, I always say I regret never having kids because I don't have grandkids who can help me with this iPhone. But anyway, <laughs> um, one of my concerns was that uh, my father was um, just a regular old worker, worked for the railroad. Um, he bought houses, had no problems buying houses. I remember when we could buy hamburger for four pounds for a dollar. Um, and my concern is when I went to college, it was basically free or very close to free. And one of my concerns is because I am a community college counselor and I know about how expensive college is, the unfairness, as, as he had mentioned, the speaker, that, you know, we don't invest as much in education as they did. And sometimes we people of color say, well, that's because the kids who are now going to college are people – of color. Mm-hmm. And so there's not as much investment in those kids as there was with me, who, you know, who happens to be Latina and um, who benefited from an education where I was not in debt when I completed my master's degree. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of my concerns as a baby boomer is the youth that have come after us and how they have to struggle. Can't even afford houses, especially in the Bay Area. Yeah. Rachel, what a great call. Thank you so much uh, for that. Thanks for the work you do for community college kids out there. I'm sure they appreciate it. Um, Philip, talk to me about the support for things like, you know, higher education. And there that is a generational load that's just really different for absolutely. younger people. Yeah, yeah, that, that's absolutely true. And actually, there was research that was done that tied those two concerns together. Because younger people are more likely to have a lot of college debt, they're less likely to be able to get a mortgage they can afford, right? Those two things mm-hmm. are linked. Uh, and you're right, I, I actually went back and in the book, I looked at the relationship between the average cost of a private or public college and minimum wage over time. And that too was just skyrocketed, right? It, when So when you hear a baby boomer say, well, I used to be able to work a job during the summer and pay for college. It's true. You know, the minimum wage was high enough and college costs were low enough that that was possible. Part of the challenge is that in the same way that the workforce, you know, there was no shortage of workers, you know, over the course of the, as the baby boomers got into the working age. Baby boomers, a lot of baby boomers went to college and that continued to increase. We continued to see a lot of people going into college, but that really started to plateau over the course of the last decade or so. Uh, now colleges are very concerned about uh, getting new students in. But the real fundamental thing here is that the way the college is paid for has changed. In the 1990s, there's a great book by a guy from the Wall Street Journal, his name escapes me right now, that goes in depth into the ways in which the way that people pay for college changed. Obviously, it led to the more accrual of debt by people. And that's had real repercussions, not for all millennials and younger and so on and so forth, right? You know, we tend to overestimate the number we tend to overestimate the number of people who actually are affected by that debt. Uh, but it has it has real repercussions that I think can't be ignored. 
Uh, Maureen writes in to say, Boomer here, born in 1957. What I've been struck by is changes in women's labor force participation. Hmm. When I graduated college, we were all committed to working, pay equity, women in the C-suite, etc. Back then, the U.S. rate was substantially higher than most of Western Europe. Right now, it's substantially lower. I have no idea how that happened, and I can't tell you how demoralizing it is for women to still make only 80 cents on the dollar compared to men 40 years later. And let's um, go to uh, Judy in San Jose. Welcome. Hi. Yes, I wanted to echo that, what was just said about women, and because there are two things. I'm a boomer. Uh, that I would say in particular that have, well, actually three. One is financialization. When I was in, I mean, we, you, there was no visa. There was no meta, meta, right. uh, MasterCard. You didn't even qualify to get a, to, to sign up for a, a gas credit card until you were a senior in college. And the, um, the one thing is, is certainly in terms of women's right in the 1970s, women's uh, in, women in professional schools was only ten, about 10 percent. And uh, my mother was, you know, radically uh, chosen to become a stockbroker. I mean, it was very, very unusual. She Chase had all kinds of problems. She when she tried to use her you know, her, her name without using my father's name. They thought she was getting divorced. Uh, she actually had to get my father's signature to buy and sell things. So I just, you know, the, the, I keep thinking about all these women in, in the Republican Party, and I go, honeys, you wouldn't be there if it weren't for the women's movement. You would not be there for the feminist liberals out there. Hey, the G- other one. Oh, is, sorry. Go ahead, Judy. The other thing I wanted to point out is just the radical transformation in terms of our science that was done through Watson Crick. And I'm going to say Rosalind Franklin, man, (laughs) she does not get enough recognition. Yeah. Um, On the idea of genetics. Huh? Yeah. Uh, The whole the the whole genetics and how that has totally transformed our biology, our medicine, our evolution, just, you know, all of anything related to biology at all has completely been transformed by that that discovery. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much, Judy, for those like excellent points about changes in society and and in the world um, that the baby boom both kind of drove and and was a part of. I mean, one of the fascinating things that you mentioned, Judy, just because we we haven't really touched on it, you know, credit cards do, in fact, rise with the baby boom as well. Right. I mean, they're kind of have the same kind of adoption curve as as color TV, practically. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And the the book actually tracks it uses it. It has actual adoption curves. It shows those the ways in which these things really uh, help to contribute to the technological changes. And yeah, yes. So that has profound repercussions for economics. I mean, when I talk about how the baby boom has reshaped the United States, it's obviously happened in concert with things, you know, geopolitics as well, obviously had an effect on it, the, the end of the Cold War, things along those lines. But yes, when we talk about what has happened over the course of between 1946 and today, all of it occurred within the lifetimes of the baby boomers. Much of it was driven by the baby boomers. But of course, all of that was also complicated by these external factors as well. Yeah. Um, let's bring in uh, Mark in Walnut Creek. Welcome, Mark. Hi there. Uh, born in 49 and uh, retired. And at 74, I have plenty of energy and do a lot of things, And uh, but unable to get jobs that use my skills because of my age. Hmm. And it's been incredible the number of times that I've been uh, – 
not accepted for positions because of how old I am. Right. And it's even more incredible that employers uh, don't hesitate to say something about it. Huh. You know, Mark, so, can I know, ask you something? We're out here, and we have the energy, and we have the ability, and our wisdom is not being taken advantage of. Yeah. No, I, 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 I hear this, Mark. And I, one question I have for you. Has the experience of ageism, as you're experiencing it now, has it changed anything about, like, other reflections on the way that society works? Has it made you want to, you know, get involved in politics or is it or or has it just been frustrating on a, on a personal level? Uh, it's been frustrating on a personal level. Um, really have no interest in, in politics. Instead, I volunteer. Mm-hmm. I have a, uh, a full time job volunteering, visiting people that need visitation, delivering meals, uh, doing uh, odd jobs for as a volunteer to help people. Mm-hmm. So uh, I've just substituted everything I did for money with uh, <laughs> things I can volunteer to do. Well, thank you for that service community, Mark. Really appreciate that. And I'm sorry that it's otherwise um, been, a, been a frustrating experience. I mean, Philip, this is clearly going to be something that's kind of an ever larger issue. Um, right. and, it's a, and it's a real thing, right? No, absolutely. I mean, one way to think about this is Let's just imagine you have a group of older Americans who are age 65 to 70, and some of them are choosing to continue to work. Some of them are choosing to uh, seek out new employment. Some of them are choosing to retire, right? That's been a pattern that's existed in the American economy for decades now. Now you take it and you take those numbers of each of those groups of people that are doing each of those things and multiply it by 10. Right. All of a sudden, you have 10 times as many people. And this is 10. 10 is not actually the factor. But just yeah. imagine. Yeah, right? yeah. You have 10 times the number of people who are deciding to stick around in their jobs. And all of a sudden, there's all this frustration from younger people. It's like, I want to move up the ladder, and I can't because this person won't leave. I want to be Speaker of the House, but Nancy Pelosi's still there. Right? You see these factors that come into play. Or you have the situa- situation that we just heard. I'd like to get back in the workforce. But there's all these people clamoring. And at the same time, you still have all these people that are still holding those jobs who are in the same age group. There are all these ways in which just, again, the scale breaks our expectations about how we move mm. forward with these things. And so, yes, you're absolutely right. We're going to continue to hear some of these same sorts of complaints. Yeah. You know, sometimes people say demographics is destiny, right? right? I mean, this is one of the sayings. It must have been a demographer that came up with that, actually. But they, um, <laughs> in the book, you identified that there's actually some really, really important unknowns that go along with this transition of, of power and wealth among generations. What, what are some of those that sort of make it difficult to predict exactly what's going to happen in these last days of the baby boom? Yeah, so a lot of our understanding about what's going to happen in the United States and a lot of what undergirds the political tension we see in the moment is thinking about America's changing demography. And I, you know, that quote that I mentioned about how white people, to be white, does not have to think about race, that applied to me. Like, I, you know, I think about race, but I didn't have the same understanding of the nuances of race before I started writing the book. And so there are two ways in which I think the common understanding, Americans just sort of have this general idea, oh, whites are not going to be a majority anymore in the the intermediate future. And according to Census Bureau projections, that's correct. But there are two things, two very important qualifiers to that. The first is that whites are already much less densely white than whites think that they are. One of the changes the Census Bureau made between 2010 and 2020, and you know, when we talk about race, we're almost entirely talking about how when the government asks us what our race is. None of us generally thinks about what our race is outside of the context of being asked it. Uh, but that said, when the Census Bureau asked in 2010 how people identify themselves versus when they asked in 2020, they made an actual technical change in which people could write in, I'm white, but I also have a relative from 
Brazil and, you know, my grandfather, you know, is from Cuba, whatever. And it used to be they'd cut that off after a certain number of characters. But now they made a change and they actually accommodate more characters and incorporate that. And so the number of people who are identified as white and some other race absolutely skyrocketed between 2010 and 2020. It's not because whites were getting less white. It's because they were having a more nuanced picture. They were presenting a different sense of who they were and their racial identities. And so our understanding of who's white in the moment is inaccurate. Hmm. But then we look at the projections the Census Bureau is making moving forward, particularly around Hispanic Americans. And there's a real question. The Census Bureau assumes if you are Hispanic today, that your children will continue to be Hispanic. And so the density of Hispanic Americans in the country is going to grow because Hispanic families will continue to be Hispanic. But historically, and according to research, that's just not how it works, that there's a lot of assimilation, that there is a decline in Hispanic self-identity over time in generations within Hispanic families, and that there's so much more nuance to it than this simple dichotomy between white and non-white, but even the more the broader categorizations of white, Hispanic, black, those things are so nuanced and intermixed already that our understanding of this decline of whites as a majority is already, I think, wildly inaccurate. Mm. That's really interesting. I mean, we definitely have seen in the past, right, other ethnic right. groups assimilate into whiteness kind of as a set of power relations, I think, as That's it's right. put in the book, rather than as a, as like a color. Um, and I guess... We just don't know if that's going to happen with, you know, Latinos generally or, you know, specific uh, groups within the Latino, like broader population. Yeah. And we already have some examples, right? The American Southwest, for example, a century ago, you had a lot of intermixing of Mexican families and Anglo families. And, you know, there would be Mexican women that would take the names of their Anglo husbands. And then essentially that Hispanic family would just vanish, right? They just was no longer recorded. From the just, perspective of the census bureau. Exactly. Right. right, right. right. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. You know, and, and, and often the broader communities. In the 1930s, the census takers would go around. And in California in particular, they would say, OK, you're going to incorporate, you're going to come across people who are basically Mexican, but they are not necessarily recognizable as Mexican, but you can get it from cultural clues. Like they had to have a very specific set of instructions about how to recognize these people. And this was a century ago, right? Mm. You know, at the same time, of course, we had Italian Americans and people from Southern Europe uh, beyond there in Eastern Europe uh, that were not, they were not considered non-white, but they were just sort of like categorized differently until they started assimilating. And you got these families that were part German and part Italian and part English. And then it just stopped making sense to classify them as these distinct ethnic or <laughs> racial backgrounds. Uh, and the expectation is we'll probably see some of that, particularly for lighter skinned uh, Hispanic Americans. There's also, uh, for any listeners who are interested in this, we did a whole show on sort of you know racial formation and Latinos and ethnicity. It must have been about a year ago. I'm sure if you search <laughs> that for KQD form, you'll find it. Let's bring in uh, one last car. Let's go to uh, Buck in San Francisco. Hi, uh, uh, I'm 71, a lifelong community organizer, child of the civil rights, peace, and women's movements, and I have tremendous faith in this younger generation. Um, they're radical, a very high proportion of them are socialists, and I have no wonder why. Uh, look what's confronting them. High rents, low pay, student debt. So uh, the people in between my generation and the younger generation, God knows where the heck they've been. But uh, I, I've never been more upbeat and optimistic about the future of the country. And maybe we'll actually have a left in this country, which we haven't had since the uh, since the 30s. Thank you. 
Hey, thank you, Buck. Thank you, Buck. Um, Sarah writes in, uh, I'm going to take this to you in just a sec. This is kind of a, a adjacent comment. Sarah writes in to say, I feel like there's something missing from this discussion if we're not talking about the role each generation has played in dismantling the social safety net to the extent it has existed in the U.S. Not to assign too much blame to a single generation, but the baby boomers benefited from structures that some of their parents and grandparents fought and went on strike and organized to bring about and then did a lot to dismantle them, think Clinton and Clinton-era policies. We can't talk about generations and economics without talking about class and the gutting of public services over the past few decades, especially. No, that's very true. Uh, the book the book explores this to some extent. It looks, for example, at the privatization of retirement, right? That the fact that we've moved away from pensions and toward uh, individual ownership of stocks and things along those lines as retirement benefits, and how that has had negative repercussions in a lot of circumstances, like the Great Recession. Uh, that it, the 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 factor that the young people are so much more liberal and so much more democratic. Uh, obviously, the book also explores what that means over the long term. Uh, I think it's important to note that the demography of the younger generation being much less heavily white, both contributes to a hostility towards a what they see as a largely white power structure, uh, but also suggests that we can't necessarily rely on our standard and I think poorly founded idea that people get more conservative as they get older. I don't think that's necessarily going to hold true either. Mm. Uh, but yes, no, it's absolutely true that the that the baby boom generation, one of the things that it did in keeping with the analogy I used of housing and protecting housing worth, uh, there were a lot of other decisions like that made where there were enough baby boomers who were collectively interested in preserving their own positions that it had negative repercussions more broadly for the country. I don't mean that in order to malign the baby boom generation, but I think it's important to remember just by scale, if you have a number of people who are trying to affect that sort of change, you have enough scale to actually make that occur. We got a couple last uh, comments from listeners on sort of the baby boomers as a political entity. Now, one listener writes, I'm a boomer, and as such, often lumped in with conservative Trump voters. Younger people don't seem to know that boomers created the world that they now take for granted. The women's movement, gay liberation, black power, deconstructing the nuclear family, huge progressive cultural shifts, on and on. After saying that, I can just hear the hateful chorus of, okay, boomer. Alexander writes, to comment on your guest statement that boomers are evenly split between conservative and liberal, I feel like generally this generation leans more conservative because they grew up in a more conservative America. Hard for me to believe that schools were still segregated the year my parents were born, but that's the America they inherited. I've met dozens of boomers who gladly waved the progressive flag, but outrightly refused to educate themselves about progressive issues because they feel like cutting their teeth in the Vietnam era is still enough. Particularly non-gendered pronouns seem anathema to this generation. So we got a lot. The, the boomers obviously will continue probably for uh, the next 20 years to receive a, a, a ton of attention. Yeah, Phil? Yeah, no, that's right. You know, I mean, the, the, obviously, when we talk about boomer influence, though, this is the inflection point. We're living in this moment in which boomer power that they have, you know, managed to be the focus of American attention, cultural, economic, political, for three quarters of a century. That's now ended, right? That, you know, it's different phases. It's over for culture. It's ending for politics and it's changing for economics. Uh, and this is the transition. This is the this is the, this isn't a standard intergenerational fight. This is something different. Fascinating book. We have been talking with Philip Bump, National Post, uh, Washington Post national columnist and author of the book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.